Welcome to episode 60 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Mitchell Zexter, an emergency medicine resident at Albany Medical Center, as well as a past AEM RSA Medical Student Council Western Regional Representative and a past AEM RSA Vice Chair of the Education Committee, speaks with Dr. Christopher Doty, the Residency Director of the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Kentucky, as well as a member of the AEM Education Committee. Today, Drs. Zexter and Doty discuss how to provide better care for the most vulnerable patients. Good morning. My name is Mitch Zexter. I'm the Western Regional Representative of AEM RSA, and I have the true pleasure to be sitting with uh, Dr. Christopher Doty today to talk about what we can do for our homeless patients. Dr. Doty has been a program director for 15 years, originally over at Kings County in Brooklyn, and then in 2012, he moved over to the University of Kentucky act as a program director to change their educational vision. Uh, he's no longer a program director, but he is currently the president of CORD and the vice chair of education at UK. Most notably, Dr. Doty has won a couple of awards, such as the Joe Lex Educator of the Year Award, as well as the Program Director of the Year Award. Dr. Doty, thank you so much for coming out here and chatting with us about such an important topic. Well, I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. Thank you. So things we're going to talk about today, just to give an overview, we're going to go over a couple interesting cases uh, with our non-domicile patients. We're going to see what we can do for some of our more frequent visitors to our departments. And the last thing I want to go over is like how we can choose compassion for our patients who are struggling through difficult times. So, Dr. Doty, why don't we uh, start off with a cool case? Awesome. So, this is sort of based on the lecture I'm doing at Scientific Assembly 19. And when I was coming up with this talk, uh, I was thinking about all these patients that come in to the emergency department and what we can do for them. And this case jumped out in my mind. There was a young woman. She was in her early 20s. Basically, what had happened is she had come in and told the nursing staff at triage that she was pregnant and that she was 28 weeks and she was having bleeding and contractions. So the nurses, appropriately, sent her up to the OB triage, which is our protocol. So people beyond 20 weeks or so go up to OB triage and they're seen initially up there. The idea behind that is to make sure that any viable pregnancy immediately sees an obstetrician. So the thing about you know 20 week pregnancies is people that are uh, Kentucky fluffy uh, you don't always see the the baby bump and pretty much a, you know pro tip for life is you know, you never really accuse a woman of having a baby bump anyway until she's you know, two days postpartum yeah don't don't make that mistake <laughs> so this woman comes in she's sent up to OB triage and OB runs a, a urine pregnancy test and she's not pregnant so they send her back down. So this confuses the resident. So he comes in and tells me this story. And I say, well, did we run a pregnancy test? And he said, well, she looks like she might be pregnant. And I said, okay, well, let's run a serum pregnancy test. I mean, we had run a urine test, which is, you know, sort of a qualitative test. I said, you know, so, so run the serum test. It came back negative. So she was absolutely sure that she was pregnant. So basically did a pelvic exam because she was reporting abdominal cramps and, and uh, vaginal spotting, and she had no spotting. 
on an internal examination, she had a non-palpable uterus. And it became more apparent as we spent more time with this patient. It was mostly the resident that was seeing the case. You know, she had a psychiatric disease. And she had this delusion that she was pregnant with twins. So it was a busy shift. Uh, UK, you know, is a big referral hospital, a lot of area around that we take cases from. It was pretty busy. So I just said to the resident, I was like, look, get her plugged into behavioral health, you know, get her some resources and, uh, and just, you know, get her out. An hour later, he came back to me and said, you know, I discharged that lady. Then the nurse came up to me and said, yeah, I cleaned up the OB pack, which for us is the delivery pack. So I turned to him and I said, well, we have, a, we have delivery in one of my rooms? Like, what, did you deliver a baby? And he said, no, it's that same case I was just talking about. So what he did was an amazing but foolish thing is he went in there, and this is not part of the case. This is just a funny thing of, of how uh, you know, people can be knuckleheads. Yeah. Residents can make huge mistakes. So he went in and delivered these two babies. Oh, I think that's brilliant. Why was it, that a knucklehead? <laughs> well, because... <laughs> <laughs> what else could you do? Well, how, how do you chart that? Like, how do you pseudo-delivery Pseudo, yeah. done... And then, of course, the woman asks, you know, the appropriate question, uh, wh- where are my babies? You can see how the train is going to come off the tracks <laughs> at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and he looks her dead in the eye and says, they didn't make it. Wow. Bold-faced. It is. Yeah. Uh, so she just got up and, uh, and, and left. It, it worked. The train yeah. did not come off the tracks. But it, it seemed almost like he was veering around a corner on two wheels. I was astounded. I think... The teaching point in, in the case is not the funny bit at the end, but is the fact that, and, and it's an overarching theme of, of my talk, is the medicine for these patients is not complex. Uh, in fact, the most complex physiology they have is malnutrition or AKA, or occasionally they'll have clotting disorders, liver disease, that sort of thing. I mean, DKA is a much more complex physiology. Uh, sepsis is a tremendously more complex physiology and these people are not healthy and and they do have medical issues which sometimes are the sequelae of of their social issues but in general what we have to do is manage the social issues and that's what we don't do as well once we manage the medical issues once we realize they're an aka and uh, alcoholic ketoacidosis we feed them we give them some hydration you know we high five everyone in the sure. in the doctor's area and we discharge the drunk patient because we're done and we don't have to deal with them anymore but we haven't really fixed anything for the patient because they'll be back right they're yeah. going to be coming back for maybe something very yeah, and similar. they may be back anyway but it's 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 a short view of just correcting the medical issue and getting them back out on the street definitely well to me i think what the resident did was a brilliant move <laughs> to be honest i mean i gotta give him props that's really yeah, I that's was, really I, that's really intelligent and just like quick on your it, it was quick on your feet it, it and and it was and it worked i see where you're coming from yeah. on how it could be difficult but um, oh yeah like if she sued if, the hospital for, oh, totally. for psychiatric distress about telling her that that she sure. had two babies die i'm not trying to dig into you or, or the no, resident but that's exactly what i'm what i'm talking about is we think it's cool and slick when we get rid of people and, and wow, didn't that work? But we don't really see that, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, long-term consequences. Right. Like imagine uh, risk management showing up to say, did you, uh, did you tell a woman that her babies died in this emergency department? Uh, yeah. And did you report that? Does that, does that go into our, does that go into our mortality numbers? Like, did yeah. you, can you put in an instant report on that? The next thing you know, you know, the director of, of obstetrics is in the emergency department oh gosh, talking yeah. about when, 
You know, are, are you telling people that they are pregnant when they're not pregnant? And are you telling people you're delivering baby? I mean, you can just imagine. Oh my gosh, yeah. Now, yeah. It's, it's true. I, I don't even know how I would have gone about with this patient, provide as much social care as I can. I try to get involved with social workers. Mm -hmm. But in that situation where you're convinced, I mean, I guess like a long talk and think about why yeah. they're here and what do they think about their pregnancy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there may be some deeper issues there. Yeah. And, and I mean, it is true that, that we are ill-equipped in the emergency department to manage, you know, true psychotic delusions. And, and I agree with you. But probably the, the point of the case and the of point of the talk is that, is that we have to dig in a little deeper uh, and we have to be a wrangler of resources. We are a good wrangler of resources when it comes to sepsis, when it comes to DKA, when it comes to variceal bleeding, and, and people are, are dying in front of us. But for these people, we, uh, we cheap out. Well, then, uh, I know that you mentioned you had one more case that I kind of want to chat with you about that kind of goes along with what you're saying. And I believe it's a case with a patient who unfortunately has no means of where to go. And so... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad case because uh, we often have this attribution error where we, we see people that are homeless or have drug or alcohol addiction or have social stigmata. We often hold them in, in a more negative light in our mind. But this guy was doing everything he could in his life to make mm -hmm. things right. So basically, he was a veteran. He had, he had served in, I believe, Afghanistan. I don't remember if it was Afghanistan or Iraq, although I believe it was Af Afghanistan. That was a much more intense conflict. And when he came back, he did not receive the welcome that he was sort of probably uh, deserving. And through a variety of things that happened to him, he, he uh, became homeless didn't have a job. He had some post-traumatic stress disorder. He had a lot of anxiety, but he was honorably discharged from, I believe, the army, and you know, it served his country. So he basically was a veteran, and we owe our gratitude to them. And was no matter what you believe about the war in Afghanistan, he was serving his country. Of course, and came back, and now did not have a place to live, did not have any money, and was living on the streets in Lexington. He was robbed, and he received basically a, a both bone forearm fracture terrible during the assault because homeless patients have a much higher risk of violence basically so this is all backstory he comes in for the arm fracture we see the arm fracture we reduce it we splint it you know that part slam dunk you know we're sure. high-fiving each other we get sure. the, we get the patient out you know it's pretty fast boom 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 that's and so the resident goes sees the patient tells him to follow up an orthopedic clinic and he says uh, can't do that and we said, why? And he said, because the orthopedic clinic is going to expect payment. That's probably true. And at UK, uh, we, we have a sliding scale, but not, not everyone has a, a safety net hospital. Um, so the point is, is he won't, he's just going to wear a splint and wait for it to heal because he's are going to have to pay for the ER bill, which he wants to pay for, but he can't pay for the follow-up orthopedic care. So this guy who has served his country and sustained an injury, which is not his own fault, now is going to have to uh, be in pain and in a splint because you know you don't want to put a cast on he's got mm -hmm. both bone, both bone forearm fracture he's liable to have swelling and you don't right. want to put a, a circumferential cast on that yet and he won't get the circumferential cast because he won't follow up because he doesn't want to be further and further in debt uh, he is trying to work his way out of this hole uh, that he has yeah. found himself in so what, what do you do? I mean, the resolution of that case is not quite as funny as the other case or, or disturbing. And what the case, basically, because he was honorably discharged, he had, although he did, was not aware of it, he had follow-up in the VA system. 
So what helps that and, and who gets VA benefits and who doesn't is an extraordinarily complex equation. But of course the VA social workers can figure that out, but he was able to get VA benefits. Uh, so we were able to get him into a VA clinic because he was honorably discharged. If he was dishonorably discharged, uh, that would be more of an issue, but it took time and effort and you know, we had to go and get him to talk to the social worker and figure out where his benefits were, and there's a repository or a website or something the social worker was able to go to and get to that. So again, the point is it's, it's not complex, but what, what is hard about these patients is spending the extra time to, to manage the social aspects to make sure that resources are gonna be appropriately utilized for them, and if possible, Every once in a while, you just have to bite the bullet, and you have to force somebody to, to come in. You know, if, if they need orthopedic care, or they need ENT care, and it's a semi-emergent procedure. I mean, there are complex laws, and TALA talks about the fact that people have a right to, to follow-up care, but, that's, uh, but you have to be able to provide follow-up care. It doesn't say you have to provide it for free. It's, it's, it gets murky. Definitely. You know, that kind of reminds me of a patient that I had. And I know I'm very new to this career, but it, w it was similar. It was just a very, very sad case where uh, this gentleman had a very difficult time growing up. Someone tried to murder him when he was younger and got a lot of burns. His family was murdered in front of him and he was still trying to keep his head up, went to school and got a degree, but wasn't able to get a job with the degree that he had. Moved across the country. English major, huh? Uh, no, it was a tech major, <laughs> which is surprising. He was doing computer science, and you think, but uh, we need we need the arts, you know, to decompress. And so, yeah, so this gentleman, he moved across the country and uh, was working out over there, but he just was like losing himself mentally. So he wanted to move back home to the West Coast. And this gentleman was now living in his car. He lost everything, lost his house. His family's dead. You know, he has nobody, he has no friends, and unfortunately, and he's coming in for hemorrhoids. Mm. And he's unable to reduce his hemorrhoids anymore. And so I evaluate this patient. I think, oh, it's going to be a pretty pretty easy case. I'm just going to walk in here. I'm going to tell him he has hemorrhoids, going to get some sense It's fine. But I didn't know the social aspects at that time. I started talking to this gentleman, and I realized, you know, I'm, I'm worried about suicidal ideation for this gentleman. He seems right. very, very, very sad. He's very, very distraught. And I asked him, like, are you thinking about hurting yourself? He's like, actually, yeah, because I don't, this is, I mean, I can't reduce this thing anymore. I'm taking showers at the gym. This is all I can do. But now I can't even, you know, sit in my car, which is my home at this yeah. point. So, you know, like the same thing. He's like, I can call, I call surgery. I was like, can you do something about this? They're like, no, it's going to throw on both. So fall off on its own. It's fine. And then I'm just stuck in a pickle because what am I supposed to do? Send this guy out? and right. worry about this psych issue. You know, I tried a social work uh, that didn't work. And eventually, after two hours of trying to find him a home, I couldn't get one. Uh, medicine was actually incredibly responsive and they took the patient in for serial sits fast. Admitted him for pain. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah, I mean, at some point, you know, if, if we think it's an unsafe discharge or an unsafe environment, that is an admittable diagnosis, but it's often hard to get medicine to, yeah. to pull that trigger. I was very lucky. Because it's, it's hard for them to get reimbursed for it. I mean, I think you're right. This person does have some risk factors uh, for suicide. As, as you probably know, one of my other interests is in specifically for physician suicide. Right. Uh, but really, the, the three factors in suicide, according to Joyner's theory, are feeling like you're a burden, which this person probably does. Yeah. Thwarted belongingness, which is, you know, feeling like you don't belong to people or a loss of, of social connection. And then the third is a means to commit suicide. Without, without the means to commit suicide, the ability 
both cognitive and, and emotional ability to, to end your life, then you really just have suicidal ideation, and, which is why it's such a problem for physicians, because they all have the ability. Like, they all yeah. know how to do it. That's intuitive, especially for you know, a relatively junior practitioner to realize that, you know, although they're not talking about suicidal ideation, that they have some major risk factors for it. There are plenty of people that don't feel like they belong to the group. So, I mean, a lot of people have risk factors. There are plenty of people that feel like they're a burden. So it, just having risk factors is not terrible in and of its own. But, you know, he does have some risk, and especially if he has pre-existing psychiatric disease. I mean, there's, there are risk factors there, too. Definitely. Well, I was hoping that we can go over two more things real quick. The first of which is, what do you feel like we should do for frequent visitors? I mean, there, is there anything that we can do outside of, you know, they're going to come in, they may say they have some chest pain, we're going to run some tropes, and, you know, maybe make them feel comfortable, but then after that, they might come back again. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a true challenge. And I think any single person that works in the emergency department during her shift or his shift, they're going to see these people. I mean, they're people that come in that I see more than I, than I see my wife. Uh, in the emergency department. And and it drives us a little batty because we often feel like that's not why we're there. We're not there to see the person who's well with chest pain. We're there for, you know, the truly sick, the trauma, you know, those cases we talked about, the DKA and the variceal right. bleeding and and you know, we're not there for drug addicts and and alcoholics and crazy people. But maybe we are. Like we're there to heal, we're there to take care of people. And I think one of the things that we sometimes lose touch with is that everyone needs to be taken care of. And, and everyone that comes in the emergency department has perceived that they have a problem and they are asking for help. One of my, uh, one of my partners and colleagues and friends, a guy named uh, Dan Moore, uh, UK, says, I'm in the business of saving lives and helping people. And, and that's what we're doing. It really is. So the problem is, is that when we blow these people off and these patients come in over and over and over, we begin to, to not take them seriously. As an example, and this has happened to me more than once, embarrassingly, but I think most emergency physicians that have been doing this for, for a while, this will ring true with them, is I've seen a couple of chronic inebriates, chronic alcoholics that come in. And we had this one guy, Danny, in, in Brooklyn, and he came in all the time he would come in two or three times a day and he was drunk all the time i don't know how he funded this alcohol pro problem because he looked homeless you know he was always unkempt and drunk and you see him all the time yeah and he would come in he would lay down and when he woke up you know he would just basically metabolize to freedom right and when he woke up we'd give him a turkey sandwich and out he would go but every once in a while he would just keep laying there and uh, I certainly remember, you know, signing out to one of the other physicians, and, and I said, yeah, Danny's in bed 14. And as I thought about it, I said, you know, he's been there a while. And my normal thing would be to go by the bed and sort of shake it and see if they, sure. uh, see if they move and get agitated. And, and like in the middle of rounds, I'm like, oh, 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 hold on a sec. I'll be back in a second. Yeah. Which, of course, throws a monkey wrench in the middle of rounds. And I go and assess Danny, and I give him a sternal rub, and he uh, shows posturing. And I thought, whoa, so this time Danny's not drunk. This time Danny has a head bleed, which, of course, you know, he's a chronic yeah. inebriate. He falls. He's got right. atrophy. He may have some elemental liver disease, which could make you, him hypocoagulable. Sure, this, you know, he's been in my emergency department for seven hours with a head bleed. 
Great. So, you know, we, we, we assume we have this posterior probability disorder where, where we assume the people that, you know, they've come in a bunch of times, a bunch of times, it's the same thing again, and people are fine until they're not, until they're injured. I think we, we see this all the time. In, in Kentucky, we have a tremendous population of, of people that are abusing heroin, really the, the ground zero, and everyone thinks they're ground zero, but I think Appalachia is truly ground zero of the opiate epidemic. So a lot of people are on pills. The Kentucky legislature outlawed uh, more than three days prescription if you were an acute care physician or a primary care physician. So then the pills dried up. So they all went right. to heroin. Right. Yeah, I, I see a crazy amount of endocarditis. I see a crazy amount of sequelae uh, from IV drug abuse. You know, and it's the same thing. And these people come in not feeling well, and, you know, they're, they're four weeks out from their last, you know, heroin use. Well, you know, they, they have endocarditis. And this time it's not just, you know, whatever pain-seeking, uh, pain medicine-seeking behavior. It's, it's endocarditis or whatever. So... I think we have to take these people seriously every single time, every single time. I totally agree. I, I remember seeing a it, was a, it was a young guy, he was my age, and it was scary. And I, I asked the, the patient, I was like, so how did you get into this? And he's like, you know, I went into my parents' cabinet, I took some of their pills, started using opiates. Opiates get expensive. Heroin is like 10 bucks for the day. And if you can imagine to remove the worst cold of your life for $10, yeah. he'd do it. And this guy came in and he had uh, vegetations on the tricuspid, you know, and it was mortifying really to think about that we're the exact same age. Yeah. I don't think I'm, you know, any really different than you. I just took a different path because maybe they, I saw this opportunity and maybe you would have done the same thing if you were in my shoes. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good point. And that's really yeah. scary. Is that we don't know the other influences in their lives, and especially with opiates, and this is one of the things I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about, we, we blame people for their disease. Yeah. And this is a small piece of this larger conversation about what do we do about medication-assisted therapy for people that come in with opiate use disorder. Do we start Suboxone? You know, truthfully, I mean, reasonable people can fall down on different sides of this debate, but Suboxone uh, helps people, it saves lives. It, it gets people off of heroin, and it is much, much, much safer than using heroin. Yeah. Uh, giving people Narcan that have come in with opiate overdose. Some people say we're feeding the bears. Well, it is indisputable, absolutely, factually indisputable that Narcan saves lives. Discharging people with Narcan prescriptions saves lives. And in the words of Dr. Moore, I'm in the business of saving lives. Yeah. Like, that's what I do. But we don't want to do that because we feel like then they're going to come back. You know, I mean, I think when you, when you boil that argument down, it's like, well, I, I, if I save them today, they're just going to come back again tomorrow. We gave them well, one more day. God, I hope so. Like, yeah. I hope I hope we save them so they yeah, can come back. Yeah, that's the job. That's yeah, why we do this. It's the business I'm in. But we often blame especially people with, with opiate use disorder uh, for their disease. And that may go back to this one single decision they made. Right. And one of the things that I would say is if that one decision started a cascade of events that brought them to this point, uh, then we're judging that single decision. And oh my heavens, I hope you don't judge me for one mistake I made. I agree. Uh, because, cause boy, I make a bunch. I Same really here. do. Half my um, day is just making mistakes and just learning from them. 
the other thing that, that I would say is we, we can reframe this interaction with the, with the drug addict, interaction with the person who comes in seeking uh, pain medicine. Uh, we can either let that drive us crazy because we feel like uh, they're treating us like the candy man and, and they're coming in for their Percocet, or we can see this as an opportunity to have an impact in people's lives. That's why we do it, right? If you, if you think about drug addicts, sex workers, homeless patients, those are the most disenfranchised populations that we see. Yes. And we have an opportunity to help them. And that's what most of us went into medicine for, is to help people. But we shy away when it's uh, you know opiate use disorder. Somebody comes in uh, who's a sex worker and has vaginal discharge from from vaginitis, from recurrent condom use, or not using condoms and comes in with sexually transmitted disease, and we're like, well, I mean, you're a hooker. I mean, what did you yeah. expect to happen? But that's an opportunity to heal people. And I think that one of the things that, that, uh, that can add resiliency, which is one of my other interests, is reframing how we, how we think about these people and seeing that as an opportunity to help. And maybe that day, maybe, maybe it's today that is the inflection point in this person's life. Yeah. Right? Maybe today is the day where they're like, you know, that person, for the first time, I went to the emergency department, treated me with respect, like I was a person, and you know, may, maybe I need to get my stuff together. You know, and maybe that's the point where, where things start to come together for them. So I realize I'm a New York City breeding heart, bleeding heart liberal, but, but you know, I'm in the business of changing lives. I think that's the reason I went into emergency medicine myself, yeah, is I, I wanted I, to help people. That's why we all do it. You never know. I mean, I mm -hmm. could have easily been that kid that was laying in that bed. There's no, nothing in the world that could have stopped that. It's just I chose a different path. And I think that's, that's fantastic outlook. And I hope that I continue to do that throughout my years, as you have throughout all of your years. Thank you for that. I have one last thing I think we wanted to just mention. And this is something that's been going forward. And it's choosing compassion for our yeah. patients. And uh, I think it's a great note to end on because, at the, as you just said, Dr. Doty, we are in the business of saving lives and we're also in the business of providing compassion to our patients. We should be the people that they feel safe coming to. That's why they come to the emergency department. Right. And so there's a new law that's going around and it's uh, making sure that every time we discharge a patient, we provide them with adequate clothing and a meal. This is the law in California you're this, talking about. I think this is the law in yeah. California, yeah. I don't know if this is branching out to other areas, but do you have any thoughts? Well, the, the people that are driving this at UK wonderfully uh, are the nurses. We have, we have one nurse in particular. Uh, well, we have a, a group of nurses that are sort of the empowerment committee. And there's one that's sort of spearheading this choosing compassion. And the idea is, is just to think one level deeper when they come in. So if somebody comes in and, and uh, you know, their clothes are covered with lice or, or they're cut off because they were in a trauma or they were assaulted or they were sexually assaulted, for instance, a woman who's sexually assaulted, she comes in, I mean, her clothes are taken as evidence. So now you take a woman who's sexually assaulted, you take her clothes away, and then you're going to discharge her in paper scrubs in Kentucky Can't do in that. February. You know, in Kentucky, people think if yeah. Kentucky's hot, well, it goes to extremes. So it's hot right. in the summer and, and it gets pretty cold in the winter. So thinking one level deeper, you know, if, you know, can, can you develop a clothes bank? These guys at Bombas, the sock company, oh yeah, you know, they they actually donate one pair of socks for every pair they sell, 
the reason they did that was because they discovered that socks are the number one requested item at homeless shelters, or at least that's what their marketing campaign says. So socks, shoes, clothes, uh, these sorts of things. You, you can create a, a clothes bank pretty cheap and just, you know, it's not the medical piece. It goes back to, you know, come full circle. It's just the next step deeper to, to sort of help people. So I think, you know, this is a great way to end, which is to really choose compassion and and think about how do we really make this person's life better and how do we let them depart uh, with some dignity, you know, instead of paper scrubs or not too long ago, there was a patient who was discharged and they had uh, their pants, they were a trauma patient and they had had their pants sort of cut up the seams up to the crotch almost and no shoes, shoes were gone. So it's a dude with, you know, these sort of flyaway pants, you know, uh, it's cut from cuff to groin. So you still cover the, you know, the genitals, you sure. know, the pockets still work, but no pants yeah. or no shoes, I should say, no socks. Uh, no ability to really get around in, you know, 16-degree yeah. weather. If there's no public uh, transit system or if they don't have, you know, $5 or $3 or whatever it takes to get a bus pass, then, you know, they're walking. So uh, choose compassion. Choose compassion. Well, Dr. Doty, I am so privileged to have been able to sit with you and chat about this incredibly important topic. Yeah, I'm you. so happy to hear that you are, you know, so passionate about it as well. You know, I believe this will be the conclusion of our great podcast be sure to look out for more podcasts from the scientific assembly that we are here meet great talks from other physicians that you won't want to miss out and more importantly you should follow dr Doty on twitter at papa's pearls i'll make sure to put everything here in the show notes so just in case you guys don't have enough time to listen to this podcast at least you can read through it gain some ideas and figure out how you can choose compassion for your next patients thank you so much for your time thank you We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.